Welcome to Conversations About Government in Iowa. This Iowa Legislative Services Agency audio program consists of interviews conducted by the Fiscal Services Division staff. Each brief conversational interview features an expert answering questions concerning a topic of interest within an Iowa State agency. On Tuesday, September 20th, 2016, Alice Falk Wisner, Legislative Analyst with the Fiscal Services Division of the Legislative Services Agency, interviewed Iowa Law Enforcement Director Judy Bradshaw. Director Bradshaw is also the former Des Moines Chief of Police. They discussed Director Bradshaw's path into law enforcement and her advances through the Des Moines Police Department, technology changes in law enforcement over the last 30 years, and the differences in being at a state agency versus a local city government agency. This is Alice Volk Wisner with the Fiscal Division of Legislative Services Agency, and this morning we're talking with Director Judy Bradshaw of the Iowa Law Enforcement Academy. And first of all, I'd like to say thank you very much for taking time out of your busy schedule to sit with me and uh, answer a few questions and do this. I've followed your career for several years, and so it's a great honor to be able to uh, sit and talk with you. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate you being here. First of all, I just wanted you to tell me a little bit about how you decided to go into law enforcement. What were some of the factors in your life that led you to that way and where you went to college and what steps led you into law enforcement? Well, I grew up in Ankeny and my father had attended Iowa State University. I was born up in Ames when he was going to college and my parents moved to Ankeny. He found a job in Des Moines as an architect, landscape architect. And growing up, I was geared towards on my mother's side to go into teaching or something to do with the schools because on her side there were school administrator types. And on my father's side, more engineering and math brain. And the choices back then, growing up in the 60s and 70s for women, law enforcement was not one of those that had any role models. There was nothing on television. I mean, at the time, growing up, Sally Fields and the Flying Nun was working outside the home, or I Dream of Jeannie, where he locked this woman in a bottle. And then the one stay-at-home mom was Samantha on Bewitched, and she flew around the house in a broom. So none of those were really realistic for me. And when I became a senior in high school, my father encouraged me to take a job at the dispatch uh, communication center with the Ankeny Police Department. And so I did, and it was interesting. So I started originally out at Des Moines Area Community College in corrections, and I thought, you know, I might want to do the probation, parole side. And once I took some classes, because they were blended, that degree was blended with some law enforcement and investigative classes and juvenile law and and the like. So those were really interesting to me. So I shifted fairly quickly from probation and parole and the correctional side to the law enforcement side and kept with that. Um, I was able to get my two-year degree. I applied to a number of different departments around the state, mostly in the metro area, and flat out told, this was back in the 70s, that we don't hire women. And there really were no repercussions for that. And I I wasn't looking to file lawsuits. I'm looking for a career. So I was able to be hired by the Des Moines Police Department in 1980 and uh, became an officer in 1983. And I continued with my education once I was on the department because I was working the midnight shift. And 
I off and on throughout my whole career, I worked midnights for about 18 and a half years if you add them up collectively. Wow. And so I was able to get my degree during the day. So I was able to, I went to Drake and got my BA in public administration and my master's from Drake. Just sort of plugging along uh, one day at a time and one course at a time in public administration. So that's how I started out. Mm -hmm. You mentioned a little bit the resistance to women in law enforcement and I've heard you talk before in different meetings about that resistance and some of the comments that you experienced and the situations that you encountered. Could you share a little bit more about that environment at that time well, and how things have changed? Sure. At the time when I came on as an officer, I was assigned to the midnight shift and there were a few female officers that were actually suing the management chain from sergeant all the way up to the chief of police for sexual harassment, discrimination, and they won their lawsuit. I wasn't involved in that in any way because I hadn't been on there when these actions had occurred. But after the lawsuit was handed down, the environment really at the Des Moines Police Department changed. There had been girly magazines and calendars and, and things like that that were pretty common throughout the building, and mostly because it was traditionally occupied by men. And after the lawsuit, the court ordered that those be removed and other kinds of actions that came out of that. And the two women um, took the settlement. Eventually, they moved on into other careers. But at the time, it was really difficult to live in the aftermath of that, not just for myself, but there were two officers that came on at about the same time frame that I did, and they were working the afternoon shift. And so a lot of the men... They either saw you more like a daughter or a sister that they felt obligated to protect or as a potential girlfriend. So, And you knew which camp you were in real quickly once you started interacting with them. But day by day, I, I developed friends within my squad and, and settled in. And there was still sort of the... There's all kinds of, I guess, terms to sexual harassment into discrimination. Sometimes it's very in your face with a comment or a gesture or just a look. And then the subtleties are in whether you're completely ignored and not acknowledged or whatever the case may be. But there's it's a spectrum, really. And you know it when it's happening to you. And sometimes it's easily to see and spot, and sometimes it's not. You started at the Des Moines Police Department and could you take me through the different steps in your career while you were at Des Moines and how you ended up being chief of police there? Well, you know, when I came on, I certainly did not have any intentions of becoming the police chief at all. I really did take my career one step at a time. I wasn't sure where it was going to lead. There were periods of time where I wasn't sure if I was going to stay after I received my degrees. I, I think I was like anyone else. You kind of look around, you make sure that this is still the right career for you. But I work patrol, like I said, the first five years of my life or so went and was reassigned then to the narcotics unit and worked undercover in narcotics for several years. And then I was promoted to sergeant out of the narcotics unit. And anytime you're promoted, you go back to the midnight shift usually or the afternoon shift because you're at the bottom of that rank in seniority. So every time I moved up, I would go back to the midnight shift is where my journey took me. So I went back to midnights. 
as a sergeant and then from there I was selected to lead the gain unit. Those hours were from 8 at night till 4 in the morning so I did that for several years and that was back in the early 90s when there were very open street gangs that were running drugs and crack cocaine was very prevalent. We had experienced city of Des Moines went from zero drive-by shootings one year to 150 the next year and there was a young boy that was killed Daryl Grady in a gunfight on a street corner and so that's what prompted the chief to take the action to form a gang unit and respond to that violence on the street and so from being a sergeant on the gang unit I then was reassigned to the police information officer and I did that for about four and a half years I hadn't been in that PIO position for very long when the floods of 1993 occurred Mm -hmm. And we had national media here from everywhere. Well, that was really challenging because our building took on water. We had to evacuate, um, as a lot of people did. And we had a command post at East High School. And it was just interesting to see how that was set up and how we responded. And from there, then, um, I was promoted to lieutenant, went back to Midnight's and worked uh, Midnight Patrol for a couple of years, then was transferred to the traffic unit. The assistant chief at the time, Kane Robinson, wanted to completely revise the investigative techniques of the traffic unit. Because we, we sort of, at the time, had one foot in the past with the traffic unit and investigative techniques, and we needed to move that forward. And so we were able to, to do that and change the way we investigated hit-and-run accidents, fatal accidents. And then from there, I went to the tactical unit as a lieutenant. I was the commander of the TAC unit. I worked there for a year and a half, two years, and then I was promoted to captain. Went back to the midnight patrol and worked for captain for a little over a year. And then went and was in charge of the reassigned to the special operations, which is overseeing the tactical unit, the traffic unit, the gang unit, couple others that I can't recall right now. Um, and then from there I was promoted to major, which is the equivalent of assistant chief at Des Moines mm -hmm. PD. And I was assigned to the detective bureau, which where I worked that for about three years. And then I was assigned to the office of professional standards, which is internal affairs. And that's where that my next move then was to chief of police. That's amazing career that you've had over the years, and I can remember when you were the PIO, and have just kind of watched your career grow over that time. So congratulations, and what a lot of sacrifice to your personal life to keep on that track. And I can't imagine going from days to midnights and making that switch, however many times that you did. And that's amazing to be able to keep up with that. It's a lot. When I was getting ready to retire, I remember talking with some family and, and colleagues one night about how long I had been on call. And from the time that I took over as the gang unit sergeant, which was back in the early 90s, I was on call the entire rest of my career. So I retired in 2014, so I was on call from, I think, 1991, 92. And that means you have to be available to go mm -hmm. out, and, and I did go out, and it's exhausting. Always, although you're off and it's your free time, you have that to be. That phone rings, and yes, you have to be yeah. ready. I mean, you make you have to make sure that you have 
the proper equipment with you and even if you're out at the mall or a children's event you have to make sure you're always 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 checking your phone and it's just to see if maybe you missed that call out mm -hmm. so you have to be mindful and even when I travel out of state I would get 80 to 100 emails a day and you can't let that wait a whole week so you're constantly mm -hmm. going in I was anyway at the end of my day I remember many times on vacation coming in and after the kids are asleep getting onto the laptop and going through my emails at the mm -hmm. end of the night so mm -hmm. that and uh, making phone calls sometimes the next day to follow up from a, an email yeah, it's a huge, huge sacrifice so you mentioned the open gangs that were on the streets in the 90s and I'm wondering it seems like lately there's been an uptick in gun violence and an uptick in shootings in Des Moines, drive-by shootings, that type of thing. How does it compare today compared to when you were working on that gang unit? And is it worse? Is it better? And we're just hearing more about it? That's a good question. I've been away for two years. I would have to look at Des Moines' numbers mm -hmm. to see how the shootings compare to the 90s. You look at your violent crimes. You, you compare your your shots fired, your shooting calls, certainly your homicides are your gauge that you use to see how you're doing. But you also then look at your clearance rates. And Des Moines does a really good job of clearing its cases. So you might read about a shooting or a robbery, and but you're also going to read how Des Moines cleared that. Mm -hmm. and, and Des Moines has and continues to be very, very effective at, at clearing it's violent crime so to tell you what it's trending I do know that probably since about 1992-93 crime began to trend down even with the proliferation of gangs once law enforcement and the community responded to that and, and to gangs and some gang units went away they went away in Des Moines the gang unit ran its course and was effective till about 1996 and then the department took a different approach mm -hmm. with street gangs and crime was also trending down. So as an executive leader in law enforcement, you have to be ready to read the trends um, to try to determine what's the right match for this particular trend right now, whether it's burglaries, robberies, shootings, homicides, whatever the case may be. So you can either go in as a law enforcement executive and simply maintain or you can look at and police through intelligence and, and through the trends and use your resources and direct them and redirect them. Mm -hmm. And that's how you're effective at tamping down the crime. It's always going to be there, especially in most communities. I mean, it's going to be there in a larger city like Des Moines, but the way you, you tamp it down is by refocusing resources right. when you need them. Right, using those resources effectively. Mm -hmm. I'm going to skip around on the questions a little bit, and while we're still talking about some things that you did as an officer, when you were an officer, or as you made your way up the ranks a little bit, what's the one case that you think that still sticks with you that was very difficult at the time? Do you have anything that didn't get solved that kind of haunts you, or a difficult case that you had to work? As I look back, there are cases that mostly in, in some of the calls that I responded to as an officer, 
some suicide cases where I watched a man shoot and kill himself. His wife had called us and said he's in the driveway, he has a shotgun, and I pulled up just to see he had committed suicide. There's a baby death in particular where a mother gave birth and um, had stabbed her newborn several times with scissors and put it in a garbage bag. And, and the garbage bag had ripped open when they had picked it up, the public works folks, to throw it in the back of the garbage truck. Calls like that, um, hangings. There's been some really horrid accident scenes where uh, very small children have died and multiple family members have lost their life. So I to say that, hey, it's this infamous case or that, I think probably for most officers, it's a collection of different really, really traumatic events that you went to. And I know the public usually goes to, what's that one homicide? But suicides do a lot of damage, and it's the same sort of trauma to that individual. And those are just as traumatic to the officer. So it's been a collection of really awful shootings and stabbings and and things over the years. There's really, there's a couple that stand out that I think of from time to time, but not many, mm-hmm. not many. And then on the flip side of that, what are the calls that you enjoyed the most or a situation that you really felt good about or a case that you helped resolve that stands out in your mind? Well, those are simple ones where you found that six-year-old who she'd been wandering around and the parents are frantic and you return them back home. There used to be a, an elderly woman on the south side that would call and fabricate that there was a burglary occurring or somebody suspicious in her backyard. And I think maybe the first time I went out there that was true and I would talk to her and anyway, she had an occasion to, to call this in. Um, there was never anybody in the backyard, but I would have a cup of coffee with her, you know. <laughs> and uh, we played Park Cheesy every now and then um, when it was slow. So <laughs> just the people that you meet out there on the streets. As chief of police, I think probably one of the, my most proudest accomplishments is the community ambassador program, which is um, volunteers that come forward from the community that are willing to wear the Des Moines logo, put their name on it, do ride-alongs with police officers, get to know what our procedures are and our practices are, bring that back to the community. Uh, They assist the CAP officers and volunteers assist with community events, everything from Juneteenth to the State Fair to Latino Festival, Asian Festival, any large gathering. We really tried to get our CAP ambassadors out. We started with nine ambassadors originally that were mostly from the faith-based community. And I think when I retired a couple years later, there was over 200. So the community responded well to the to the community ambassador program. And, mm-hmm. and I hope to see that continue. I think that's really effective. So I was going to ask what you felt your greatest accomplishment as chief was. Would that be it? That would, that would be it right there. Great. I'm really proud of that. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important to have that presence in the community and build those relationships. As chief and now as director of IELA here, what are some of the challenges that you've dealt with in terms of recruitment and retention of police officers over the years? And, and has that changed at all? Does it 
vary with the economy? Does it vary with what's going on and gets reported in the media? Well, you know, it's, it's difficult now for law enforcement executives to recruit minorities for a couple different reasons. First of all, I remember just from my experience uh, at Des Moines Police Department, your goal is, is to have a very diversified workforce and you are competing with the private sector. So with our minority community, which is relatively small in the state of Iowa, you're trying to recruit um, folks that are qualified and uh, to meet the hiring standards, but you're competing with the Wells Fargo's and the Allied's and the private sector who really sort of take up a lot of um, your minority community because they're trying to diversify their workforces in the same way that the public sector is. And so with that competition, it's sometimes really, really difficult to get minorities interested in the police department. Also, during this time period where there's this amplified, if you will, relationship and conflict between law enforcement the police and our African-American communities across the country. There's a lack of trust, there's a lot of frustration, there's a lot of confusion, there's a lot of hostility from both sides. There's a lot of fear. I think what drives it is fear from both sides. Members of the community are afraid of police, police are afraid of being injured by the community, and there's a lot of fear going back and forth. And what heals that and bridges it is conversation, is building relationships with the leadership. And so anytime, and I think the new chief is continuing to do this, anytime you do any kind of hiring, um, you sit down with the NAACP, with the Black Ministerial Alliance, with your various leaders in the community, minority leaders, and say, how can you help us? We're gonna do a recruiting effort here. Can you bring applicants in? And then how can we help in preparing them for the hiring process so they're successful? in the written exams and the physical testing and, and the polygraph. I mean, there's a lot to being hired as a law enforcement officer, a lot of different mm -hmm. phases. And for most folks, it takes them one or two times with the best candidates. Mm -hmm. So how do you better prepare your minority applicants so that, first of all, they're interested and they're successful once they have applied? Because it's very frustrating. I remember watching our hiring process and hearing, okay, here are the numbers, these are the breakouts, and then you get down to, here's your top 40, and there's maybe one African-American within that group. And you're looking back thinking, where did the rest of that pool of candidates get eliminated? And again, that's where you have to have good relationships with the minority community. And then you use your own officers. Women officers beget other women being interested. Black officers beget other black citizens being interested. So they are your best recruiters many times. They go back and help recruit for your agency and you have to get them engaged and get them interested. Here in my role as director, I don't do any kind of hiring. The local communities, the chiefs and the sheriffs, they hire and they send their candidates to us and we do the training. So I'm not part of that hiring piece here anymore at ILEA. So technology has changed a lot over the years since you began in, was it 1983? Mm-hmm, yes. So I was hoping to uh, get your thoughts on those technology advancements and your thoughts on those from in-dash cameras to now we have body cameras and just the different things that you've seen change over the years and how you feel they're beneficial 
or not beneficial. In a number of different areas, technology has changed from the cars that we drive that are more efficient. The engines aren't as large, they don't go as fast, but uh, citizens are driving cars that are just as efficient and they don't go at the speeds that they used to. So from a green perspective, I mean, law enforcement is right up with the rest of the community there. When I came on, we literally still had red cherries on top that went around and they, the light got frozen in the winter. Now there are LED lights that are very, very efficient. There's not a huge drain on the batteries. They can be seen from long distances. The radios, when we came on, there were dead zones and dead spots in the city of Des Moines. The infrastructure for the radios now are so much better. There's more radio channels, so officers can communicate off that main radio channel if they choose to. Um, the weaponry is different. When I came on, we were carrying revolvers, and now I, I think, I don't know of any, any officer that still carries a revolver, maybe off-duty, but everything is an automatic weapon, and you do that because you can carry more ammunition with you, and they shoot much faster than a revolver. And so the weaponry has changed. There are more tools on your tool belt, if you will. Uh, we used to carry a straight nightstick, and then we went to the PR-24, which has a handle, and then we went to the ASP, which is thin, it's more compact, and it's very efficient. It's not going to be grabbed out of your hands as easily as a PR-24 that was sort of bulky, and it was hard to carry. There was no way to, to contract that thing into anything uh -huh. smaller, like the ASP. And then the tasers. We didn't have tasers when I came on. The tasers are really an attempt at a non-lethal way to stop someone. Law enforcement is constantly trying to figure out how do we stop the bad guy and bring them into custody without a lot of injury to them or to the officer. And so the weaponry has tried to to go in that direction to a certain extent. There's no ring that you wear where a big net comes out and captures you and makes it easy. There's no way to go completely hands-off to bring someone into custody. You have to put your hands on them. There's handcuffing and you have to put your hands on them and that can go either direction. And the officers usually, we don't dictate the direction that's going to go. And uh, that's on the bad guy to decide whether or not to cooperate. So the tasers are there. And then computers in the cars. The officers now, I think most agencies are going to them if they don't already have them. And officers are able to have their office right there in the car. It's extremely efficient. And what we found at Des Moines is that the officers could view all of the calls that were waiting. Before we couldn't. We were sort of at the mercy of the dispatchers to say there's 10 calls waiting on the east side or on the south side or, or whatever and these are the important calls there's high priority calls that are waiting and they had to get your attention through the radio now on a computer you can see it a snapshot and you can say okay I've got to get from this call that's a minor call I've got to get over to that domestic or or this whatever the high priority call is, where there's an injury or whatever. So I think through computers, officers are a lot more efficient and they're taking things off that computer screen and they're responding to your calls a lot more efficiently and rapidly. So that has changed. 
there's rifles out on the street. When I came on, we had the revolver that was issued and a shotgun, 12-gauge shotgun. And now there are rifles that are efficient, that can shoot a lot more accurately and at greater distances with accuracy. And that's where the rifle is useful. Uh, and there are a lot of officers. Not all of them carry them in Des Moines, but they have rifle officers that are authorized and trained to carry those. And then you move into the area of cameras, where there are cameras in the cars, and capture traffic stops, um, the audio, the visual. Really, that car, the shell of that car, I remember, is less expensive than the computer, the tower, the weaponry, the camera system. All that together, upwards, can be over $50,000 mm -hmm. for that office car. And I think the shells are under $20,000 if you just simply buy the shell of a police car. So that's why you don't like to see them <laughs> wrecked and crashed in these chases. So there's a lot of weaponry there and cages. I know Des Moines went to putting cages. We did when I was the chief. It makes it more efficient. And, and again, you're trying to go for efficiency, trying to free that officer's time up. Keep them safe as best you can. So if that's through a cage or whatever the technology, that's always good. And then the body cameras. I know I wouldn't be too crazy coming on today about wearing a body camera. They don't really say, we trust you. They don't say, we support you. They say, we need a camera to watch your every move and to make sure you're doing the right thing and saying the right thing. They capture everything from what you're ordering for lunch to every sigh, everything you do is captured. Mm -hmm. And I don't think most people are, would do that in their current jobs, but police officers are willing to do that in order to build that trust back. And so you don't hear a lot of complaints from law enforcement saying that. It's unfortunate, but at the same time, I think it's gonna also show to the public that there's really high levels of professionalism out there. I can remember when I first took over Internal Affairs thinking, wow, with all the cameras now and the cell phones, most of our investigations are and complaints are going to involve someone coming in and saying, hey, I was down at Court Avenue, look what your officer did, the way they talked, look what they did to this person, or look what they did to my friend. Do you know that we didn't get any of those? in about during a five-year time period. Really? I was astonished. I'm thinking not even on a traffic stop where the officer walks up and someone's recording them with their phone. We didn't get any of those. So a lot of it was just phoning in and saying, hey, well, this is what I think, or I don't understand what happened to me that night. Explain mm -hmm. that. And did what they did, can they do that to me? Is this by policy? So we didn't get a lot of those in Des Moines. And I think when you see those across the country, it shows you how rare those conversations are. Now, when they do a whole train of these, they being the media, one after the other from this community and then that community and then this one and then that one, it seems like you've got to be kidding me. Is this the way officers are talking to the community? But they are across the country. And when you think of how many contacts a police officer makes in one year, just one person. Um, I know in Des Moines, they were well over 300,000 contacts when you added everything an officer does and a detective does, and the potential to capture rude, bad, caustic behavior, and it's not there. 
So there's really high levels out there, and people are getting into law enforcement for the right reasons. And that technology, I think, vets that out and, and really kind of shows that. You're talking about all of the equipment in the car. When I would go on a ride along in West Des Moines, I'd be like sitting <laughs> as far over next to the door as I could because we've got the computer. They even had printers in the car where they could print tickets. We do. We do. <laughs> I know. And reports. Yeah. And so the space for the partner is getting smaller and smaller. I see that technology as becoming more advanced for officers. I mean, the laptop will probably get smaller. The equipment to use to produce the tickets will get smaller. That will all become compacted so that you can do that in a simpler, more efficient way. Kind of following along the same lines as the technology advancements, I know there have been changes over the years in methods to collect and analyze not only evidence but intelligence and sharing between agencies and the changes that have occurred between information sharing between agencies since 9-11 and wanted to get your views on that aspect of policing as well. Law enforcement receives its technology by way of cameras, night vision, weaponry. We usually get that probably I'd say five to ten years after it's been used by the military for mm -hmm. that time frame. So by the time it trickles out to the public from the military, they're on to even more advanced kinds of cameras and weaponry. And so we inherit that. And our ability to communicate through computers and get that information on a picture, get a video on a laptop in your car. You are just more of an efficient police officer today. In some cities, they have uh, fingerprint readers. So when they stop you for a violation, they take your driver's license, but they also have you do a finger impression. And from that fingerprint, they can check to make certain that it's really you and you are who you say you are. And they can check to see your criminal background, what your history is. That fingerprint links you to so many different things as far as activity. That's exciting stuff. And I think that is probably, it's expensive, but I also think that's probably where, again, a lot of the larger cities can afford those things. They're moving in that direction, or at least they have officers on the street. If they all don't have the fingerprint reader, there are some that are having that out there sporadic so that if I have access and I want to, you know, I need that, I can come to your location and provide that to you. There's also technology, and I know we purchased one when I was a chief, the license plate reader. Mm -hmm. These are cameras that are really highly efficient that are connected to a computer, and they can read license plates and check them for if they're stolen, if the owner is wanted, if they've been involved in a crime, and you get these alerts. So you could be driving down a street that all of a sudden you'll get alert, stolen Chevy Volt, white two-door, and you'll, that's where you start looking around, you backtrack or whatever, and you go back and you locate that car. That normally, just driving down the street, you're not going to have in your head every single stolen car that's been entered into the system, but the computer does. And so these cameras pick those up. They're also very good when there's an outside shooting or scene or something where you're converging on it and you want that camera to collect 
all of the license plates in the area and that's where you see like New York they just solved that bombing case over the weekend or over the last couple of days and you can bet that the camera system in New York City combination of businesses their equipment in their cars that combined sifting and sorting through that technology is what did it so cameras are really critical and the use by the private sector are utilized by law enforcement as well so those are exciting kinds of technology that are now at your fingertips that you didn't used to have. How about DNA and how that's evolved over the years? DNA has evolved. I can remember a case of a serial killer that was actually working in the Des Moines area and the first woman that he killed was in uh, West Des Moines, mm -hmm. out there by Lowe's, and they had some DNA from him, but the sample was not that large. And I remember uh, the state DCI, it was John Quinn, he's now the chief out in Waukee, and uh, I went to Chief Quinn's, then Detective Quinn with the DCI, I went to his presentation on that after they'd caught the man doing all the slayings. And he walked us through it, and it was fascinating because they knew they had a sample. And what people don't realize is that when the sample is really small, then you have to be really smart about how you test it. Because once you test it, you use it up. You, don't, you can't just retest. Sometimes you have a lot of blood, whatever, body fluids in order to test. And so you don't have to worry about shrinking that sample size. And in that particular case, if I remember correctly, they knew that there was uh, technology coming out right around the corner, waited for it, used it on that sample, and were able to link it to him. So the DNA is only getting more efficient as well. We have to wait for the chemists and the doctors to sort of help us in that arena. But certainly DNA helps solve crimes that we weren't able to solve five, ten years ago. Mm -hmm. So now I want to talk a little bit about your time here at the Iowa Law Enforcement Academy. And I know you've been a big proponent of integrating Blue Courage training into all aspects of training here. And wanted you to talk a little bit about that and how that is going and where you see that taking off in the future? Well, one of the things that we have done over the last year, uh, and I say we, well, I've got uh, one of my assistant directors, Kim Waddy, is trained in Blue Courage. And through his efforts, we have put together and trained all of our instructor staff. And what Blue Courage is, in law enforcement, we do a really good job of teaching skills. We teach you the proper handcuffing techniques. We teach you how to shoot a gun. We teach you how to make a traffic stop. And there's always these how-tos, the skill set. But what we have gotten away from, or really never embedded into our training and our training over time for officers, is the will set. Over time, officers become cynical. It's part of the evolution, and it's awful. It happened to me. It happens to everyone. Um, when you go call after call after call, and you're seeing some of the awful things that you're seeing, you can't go in with emotion. You can't go in and cry. I mean, you could, but you're going to miss out on what you should be focusing on. Well, the scene and witnesses, and I mean, you can't have that emotional side. So you learn how to go in, be very stoic, but alert and sort of on with collecting facts and being uh, pretty efficient at putting a case together. 
but you turn that off when you turn the emotion side off and pretty soon it's hard to turn that emotion side back on when you go home and it's off all the time and there's a level of burnout and there's a you know what I want to come home I just want to sit here I just want to have my own time there's a lot of officers that resort to drinking unhealthy habits whether it's overeating drinking too much not getting off the couch once they're home because they are spent they left everything at the job and that's what we're trying to talk about is to get officers first of all to realize where they're at in their own personal lives and professional lives and really by no fault of their own they got there just by showing up every day to work and doing the job the job does it to you people don't go in saying hey in five years I'm gonna feel this way it wears you down it chews you up and can spit you out and so I think we owe it to our law enforcement officers that go out there and, and make these sacrifices to say okay time out let's let's talk about where we're at let's talk about why we went into this service to begin with the nobility of it and let's get back to what it's all about which is it's not us against them they're not all a bunch of mopes and dirt bags I'm using terms that that some may use and refer those are old terms that I used and how do we get them back how do we get back their core that they came in to the job with because hopefully it's still in there somewhere and I think the first thing you do is you talk about it you, you say this is an evolution this slowly happens over time and it happens because you're on high alert you get kicked in the gut you get punched in the face you get called names you get spit on you get shot at it's not it may not be what you thought it was going to be coming in and uh, or maybe it is but you didn't realize how it have such an impact on you emotionally and physically and so we begin to first talk about it and then recognize what it can do to you and then try to get to where let's get back to where we were when we first came on and how do we do that and so without getting into every step by step of the blue courage that's what we try to get with people and a lot of times with this training the first day when you sit down you don't have the group they are looking at you like are you serious are you kidding me we've got to talk about this for we have three-day training and then we have five-day training and they kind of look at you like oh this is gonna be a long week but by day two we have begun to make some breakthroughs and we're resonating with officers in the room and they feel comfortable enough then to say okay I get it I understand where you're going and they recognize a piece of themselves um, that they've lost or let go or that they've turned into and they recognize themselves in the training through the videos or, or through some of the conversations so we're going to continue that we're just getting off the ground with that and we're hoping that'll evolve mm -hmm. and, and we're really going to continue with that going forward with our resources and that's going on in other areas of the nation too I mean it's not just Iowa that's incorporating it it's kind of a national program that's starting to hit its stride it is it is and it comes out of the Department of Justice the Bureau of Justice Assistance and along with they partnered with IATLAS which is the uh, National Association of Academy law enforcement Academy directors so 
we've seen that as what we think is effective and it's part of the answer is to when folks say how are we going to get trust back with the community well i can tell you it's not just all through cameras everybody wearing a body camera that's going to do it it's this is a piece of it this is a piece of the mindset and the perspective and the perception that officers have of its public that it serves how's the transition been for you coming from being in a city police agency a local government agency for so many years and then going to state government how has that been besides not having to work nights anymore <laughs> <laughs> there was a transition certainly because at the city level I received anyway phone calls from neighborhood leaders on a regular basis and from citizens that wanted to they had a question for the chief or the or officer Bradshaw or or whatever whatever rank I was and so I was very very accessible now my constituents if you will I mean they're still everyday citizens but they're more chiefs and sheriffs that send their folks to the academy that's been a great adjustment there. I mean, I've, I've got an understanding now of my responsibility here at ILEA. But it's also, it seems to move slower. I like change. I like to create an environment of growth and of change and of learning, whether you're at a law enforcement entity or you're here at an academy. And when I say learning, I mean, it's not just the students that are learning, it's staff that's learning as well. It's me. It's all of us. So some things you have to unlearn and then you have to relearn and then you can grow. And if I've just been at the job and I've seen that, I'm coming in as a new person and I'm trying to evoke some changes here. And I know that's hard for people. And so I'm taking it slow. I'm trying to go in with the right temperature and, um, and be very patient. And I know that it will happen over time some of the changes here at ILEA and, I, and again I'm talking about staff and I'm talking about with where we want to go with our curriculum and, uh, and our training. One of the other adjustments I guess politically that had to be made was I'm used to a mayor and a city council that they're there every day of the year. I mean I, I talk to the mayor several times on a holiday. Christmas Day we're talking. Something happened the night before and he and I are having a conversation. And with the law enforcement entity where you're first responders, that's very common. But that mayor council I had access to every day of the year. The legislators come three months um, out of the year and what I've seen in state government obviously is you try, they try to get as much accomplished. They and the governor and, and staff try to get as much accomplished as you can while they're in session and then it appears as though there's sort of the the rolling out of the action that was taken during those three months and then there's the okay it's fall now we have to think about sessions right around the corner and how do we get our action items moved and progressed so that's been kind of a neat process to acclimate myself to there's a lot to state government but it's also been a real honor to know that the governor appointed me to this position and I am very blessed and I'm very honored by that appointment and I don't take that for granted at all so mm -hmm. it's really neat to be able to go and sit down with the with Governor Branstad and to know wow I'm sitting here with our with our governor and I'm in his cabinet and I'm just uh, that's a really neat thing for me and I take that very seriously. And the biggest challenges that you're facing at ILEA today I know the physical facility is a big part of that. 
I'll have you talk a little bit about the physical facility and the challenges that it presents and also anything else monetarily wise that you see as a challenge in going forward. The building is probably our greatest challenge and the budget is tight in there and that's not unusual that my budget was a big challenge at Des Moines so we're in government there are limited tax dollars that are available to you you try to be wise about it prioritize those funds as best you can and so I recognize coming in that ILEA had some struggles but so does every state department and um, the facility is at the point now where it has not been maintained, well maintained over the years and so we're in a position now where we have to make some decisions on do we put a great deal of money into the infrastructure of the building in order to make it safe for the students and the staff to occupy it. We've also outgrown the building so not only is the building not healthy, it's not large enough to allow us to do the levels of training that we'd like to do here at the Iowa Law Enforcement Academy. And talking about the building first, the air quality was measured last December and it came back very, very high for mold spores everywhere, in the dorms, in the cafeteria, in the administrative area, and we had to make a decision. We were full of students. We were full in the classrooms. Do we stop those? Do we relocate folks to hotels? I mean, what do we do here? We've got students that have traveled to get through this training, and their departments and agencies are expecting them to come back, certified police officers here, without delays. And how do we do that safely? And so DAS was very, very supportive, worked, um, and very critical, worked with DAS. We put together a very aggressive cleanup plan that began immediately and we cleaned all of the vents, replaced ceiling tiles, replaced filters and cleaned air handling units and this place was scoured and it took several weeks to go through this. We had air scrubbers in the building so we were doing it safely and we were doing it on the weekends, started on the weekends and again they were very very aggressive, they were ahead of schedule for completion tested for air quality again and it lowered the mold spores down to acceptable levels. In fact, they were at the floor at the time. So I was very happy about that and what it didn't do was it did not mitigate the source of the mold. So the source of the mold is our HVAC, our corroded plumbing. We have valves, plumbing valves that don't open or close or they leak constantly. The water-cooled system in this building is probably pretty good in its day, but it's not efficient now and that's where the mold is. Mm -hmm. And we constantly struggle with trying to keep the humidity levels low and we are not within those means at all. So we still struggle with part of our HVAC system on the air conditioning side. We have a boiler system that we'll be changing over here pretty soon as we go into winter. We sort of go year by year to see if they're going to pass inspection because they are original to the building. The windows are original to the building so humidity can come in, the cold air can come in. We can do a lot with the HVAC system but when the building itself and then the tuck pointing is all settled and we've got stuff coming in literally through the walls. I think she was a grand building in her day. 
but that was back in 1967. And again, we've outgrown the capacity. We have four pretty small classrooms with fixed seating, and they only have the capacity to hold about 30 students. And our classes now, we have 38 in one and 35 in the other. I was other. just going to say the classes are growing now, aren't they? They are. And folks want to send their uh, personnel here to ILEA, the chiefs and sheriffs. We want to offer Blue Courage training. We want to offer training that will assist with how do you do community outreach and Department of Justice kinds of larger trainings because we had the Department of Justice that came in in the spring and they talked about the federal laws, the color of law, unbiased policing, use of force and tactics by police officers. It was really great training. We flew this team in. We didn't have the facility to hold it here. So I relied on the guard to supply us with one of their classrooms. We had a, about 125 chiefs and sheriffs from all over the state. I would like to have more of those. Mm -hmm. We just don't have the classroom space here. So we've outgrown the facility. Uh, the facility is tired. She's not very healthy. Right now, again, we've got the levels at very safe levels. And I tell the students, this is government. We're not going to look like your bank. You're not ever going to have cherry wood here. And, and that's not what we're in it for. When you enter into this line of work, it's for the service and because you like what you're doing and, and you're really committed and dedicated to it. So if you were in it for commissions and bonuses, you're not going to stay very long. You're going to go to the private sector. And these kids, they come in and they know that. They're bright-eyed. They don't care. They just they want to know the best practices. They want to know how to do it right. And we want to give that to them. So that's where we're headed. Our biggest challenge really is the facility. And then down the road, my goal is to have a couple other instructors that can provide some of this training for outreach and, um, and the Blue Courage training. The governor did approve of another law enforcement instructor for this next fiscal year, and we're in the process of hiring one mm -hmm. for human trafficking and domestic abuse. So mm -hmm. I'll be making a decision this week on that, and so we're excited about that because we have a really modest staff of instructors. We have seven, and we train close to 5,000 law enforcement personnel from jailers to dispatchers to newbies, new officers to seasoned officers. We certify you and your equipment and then two years later you have to come back and you have to be recertified. So this instructional staff is hopping. They're going from one classroom to the next. But I'm really proud of them because like I said they're very dedicated and they're very committed at what they're doing. Great. How do you feel being a woman has influenced your or made a difference in, in your law enforcement career? I've been asked questions about obviously my gender and when I was the first lieutenant and then okay now you're the first captain and what does that mean and for women and Margaret Thatcher was asked once what is it like to be the prime minister to be a female prime minister and she looked at the reporter and she said I'm not sure because I haven't experienced the alternative and women don't, we don't go through life thinking, this sandwich is really good as a woman, and right? This is a great cup of coffee as a woman. I mean, we, we don't think that way. We're human beings. We just, we live. I mean, you just live. Do the job. You just get up and you go to work. So now that doesn't mean that I have not recognized the modeling and my responsibility. I think uh, my responsibility is being a public figure for young girls and young women. And... I recognize that that's a huge responsibility 
I try to be a good role model to others. I try to bring other women along as best I can and be a mentor to others and help them. This is the kind of profession that it is more difficult for women. There are the subtleties and then the not so subtle discrimination that's right in your face and some hostility still today. And I just think women need to support one another as best we can. And that's where I come from. I didn't climb over anybody to get where I'm at. I always had really men that lifted me up. And I try to reach out to those and do the same for others and just be a good role model. Set the example for staff and for your students. And I think you can do a really good service for others if you do that. I think that's a great way to put it, great outlook to have. So with that, we'll end. And again, I want to thank you so much for your time and um, looking forward to seeing you up at the Capitol in the future. Thank you. I appreciate it.